1: slash You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live at one. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast brought to you by examninja.co.uk who sell revision guides, workbooks and practice tests to help children do the best they can at school. Go to www.examninja.co.uk to learn more. I'm your host, Richard Spanners-Ready, and I'm joined by Matt to
2: Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Oh, it's going, well, very confusingly because this seems all wrong for some reason.
1: Well, that's because it's Saturday night when we're recording this. And this is just due to a perfect storm of childcare issues, illness and work. Sunday was just going to be very difficult. Then we realised that we're parents and we never do anything good or fun. So actually, Saturday night is free a lot of the time.
2: Yes, yeah, sadly enough, that's that's very, very true about 99% of the time. You're either at work or you're at home
1: and we have a guest star on the panel today minding the chat room is our video editor and director steve amy from australia g'day steve
3: hi everybody and uh
1: greetings from the future he's old and australian which is the purest form of bluntness also diving in from the last minute due to a snow cancelled gig is chris rainbow sparkle stevens hey chris hey spanners looking cold uh, yeah, a
4: little bit. You know, the beef from the east is, is strong. She cancelled our our race meeting today.
1: Well, I hate to say it, but little tree face, my little seven-year-old, was out karting in the snow. Shame the big boys can't do it. We are an independent podcast hosted by com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here, so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. Well, Matt. This week might be a huge letdown for all the folk that caught us for the first time after the fantastic weekend with Joe Sayward, then a fun panel show, then the amazing Mark Gallagher. And in fact, did we not have ex-Lotus team boss Matthew Carter on the show before that as well?
2: Yep, we sure did.
1: So apologies in advance, but the next podcast after this is the race review and probably the first available podcast review of the season. So forgive us the following hour of dross. Firstly, many thanks to the people who took the time to get in touch over email, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn uh, after the last weekend. You made our week. We've spent a week reading messages telling us that we're doing a great job. And that Matt is just a fantastic way to spend our time during the week.
2: Yes, I have no complaints about all of the many, many compliments we've received from listeners. And in response to your feedback, we I think we planned a show of exquisite awkwardness.
1: And I'll have to tell you now that not every week is like that. I am reminded of the first week, for example, that Joe Sayward came on and his fans listened to me. In fact, I think I got a message that said something along the lines of, Dear Spanners, after the first week with Joe, I did not like you. Now I do like you. So hearts and minds, I think we're winning half the battle. But really, Matt, if we were smart I think we just never do another show again. We could just pull a Rosberg. We hit 75th in iTunes for Pro Sport. Let's just chuck it in.
2: Yeah, walk away at the top. Why not?
1: Or we could have some big dirty news. Big dirty news. All right, Matt. Some dude is walking out of one place and going to another. And this has made a lot of people very mad.
2: Yeah, this is kind of the biggest and the dirtiest of the news that we have, Uh, and it's uh, Laurent Meckies, who has been, since 2014, the uh, safety director at the FIA, and uh, beginning in 2017, also deputy race director to Charlie Whiting, who, of course, had lost his longtime uh, deputy race director, Herbie Blash. has decided to depart for golden shores, as it were, for greener pastures. Uh, In this case, not so much greener, but redder, shall we say, in Marinello for Ferrari. Now, this has happened not too long ago, you might recall, uh, with Budkowski going to Reno. And after that, there was an enormous human cry from all the teams, this is completely wrong, this should not happen again. This is totally unfair. And the FIA was like, yes, you're right. The gardening leave is too short. It should be a proper year now. And yet we're hearing that although he will immediately cease his Formula One duties, he will remain employed at the FIA until June and join Ferrari in September after the summer break. And some people are not happy because not only does that seem like the FIA hasn't really dealt with the issue. But also, um, they are accusing Ferrari of breaking a quote unquote gentleman's agreement. And that brought up a whole different ball of wax.
1: Matt, this has actually kicked off quite a storm, but not really for the reasons of the news story. I mean, Martin Brundle took it on on Twitter to accuse everybody of being snowflakes for even daring to think that people would uh, think there was such a thing as a gentleman's agreement. So, uh, yeah, it is a little odd that there was nothing written in stone. But I think it was McLaren that have led the chorus of saying, hey, uh, there's something out of order here. But surely it's more a case of, okay, fool me once, uh, fool me twice, it's my fault. They won't just trust Ferrari again with a gentleman's agreement of this nature.
2: Well, and not only that, but I mean, boy, talking of gentleman's agreement, um, didn't Mercedes supposedly violate the exact same kind of a pact last season in Spa when they introduced their last uh, spec power unit ahead of the change in the oil burning regulations. I mean, it, it does seem to be for teams to agree on something and then, seeing they could have an advantage, conveniently ignore whatever words they said in the general direction of the rest of the teams.
4: So, what does this? What does this prove? It proves that gentlemen's agreements in F1 do not exist. They are just a, a concept. I mean, even like team and driver contracts aren't worth the paper they're written on. So why would a, a gentleman's agreement be have, have any value whatsoever?
2: Well, I think Guido Vandergaarder might beg to differ with you on that one. And Sauber may have learned its lesson. But on the whole, you're correct. If it's not written down on paper, then it, it is basically meaningless. And if any team, and this is, what is it? This is one of the things about Formula One. If a team sees an advantage, they will take it. And in this case, for whatever reason, the FIA have yet to update their gardening leave policy. And Ferrari saw an opening, and they took it. Although they might just see it as payback for what Mercedes did last season.
3: Um, Steve Blackout says gentlemen's agreements in F1 are effectively meaningless, and we all know they are. But it's a bit like McLaren saying they have the best chassis. It's easy to say, but they've got to prove it now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Rob Graham says he likes my Led Zeppelin T-shirt. So there you go.
1: But Matt, surely everyone would have learned after the FIA's guy went to Renault. Um, I mean, is the FIA just a terrible place to work? Or has everyone suddenly figured out that there's this wealth of employees that have all the information from all the teams and they're just throwing infinite money at them?
2: Uh, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a ladder. I think they've realized that they can afford to pay salaries that the FIA can't. And as a result, um, they, they, much like they do with, with teams when they encounter hard times, they're just picking up talent wherever they can find it. And in this case, being safety director, um, he will be well acquainted with the details of all of the chassis that are being running, that are going to be run for the 2018 season, which may offer, uh, Ferrari some big help with their development for the following season.
1: So I take it, Sparkles, you are in Team Brundle here, which is they shouldn't be entering or putting any weight behind these agreements whatsoever. For example, things like oil burning, and we definitely won't use traction control. We promise.
4: I, th- I think if you don't have it down in the regulations, then the teams aren't going to abide by it. You know, and that is exactly what they're supposed to do. This is ruthless competition. That gentleman agreement doesn't it doesn't work in any sport the point of the sport
1: well matt we have another item as well i think we're going to delve into the world of technology
2: indeed let's um and much like we've had our first big political controversy of the year we've had already our first big technical controversy of the year and that would be the technical, technical directive um, that warns the teams not to engage quote false engine maps to blow the rear wing now uh, in case you're wondering which teams might be up to this, and you'd probably be thinking Red Bull, because they just sort of, you know, much like the boy who cried Wolf, they have been guilty of many things quite often. But in this case, uh, going back to testing, it was actually uh proper team Renault that were heat proofing the bottom of their rear wing and also running their exhaust at the maximum allowed angle. So very much this would seem to be aimed at team Renault. And in terms of blowing, what we mean here is that they will continue to run the engine off throttle and use the exhaust to aid the downforce this is very similar to what red bull did with their exhaust blown diffuser and in fact they changed the uh, regulations so you couldn't put the exhaust down there anymore to aid the diffuser but Renault had figured that if they if they do it just right they can get uh similar gains by running the exhaust underneath the rear wing and that's what they're trying to do. the Charlie Whiting has said, if we catch you running the engine like that, there that you will have run afoul of the regulations, which aren't really regulations because they're only technical directives. And technically, they don't count until they go to court or the uh, World Motorsport Congress passes them as proper regulations.
1: Now, obviously, I understood all of that. And actually, my opinions fairly much align with yours, if you gave any. But Sparkles, I'd be interested in your take.
4: Well, I'd love to know why the FIA hates exhaust blown anything so much. I loved the exhaust blown diffuser when it was, uh, you know, at its peak in sort of 2010, 11, uh, and 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 a little bit beyond that to some degree as well. I think it, it made an awesome sound. The cars were fantastically quick without, you know, adding that uh, aerodynamic deficiency because you know there's that general rule: aerodynamics it makes the racing worse. So here's a way of us getting more downforce without making the racing worse. I, I would love to know why they hate it so much. I think it's genius.
1: Yeah, but Matt, I mean, they did kind of advertise it by putting a massive heat shield on the rear wing, sort of asking for trouble, aren't they? To Or they've invited the challenge, have they not?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's kind of hard. It, unlike other things, it's kind of hard to disguise your rear wing melting during testing. So they were either only going to run four or five laps at a time, or they're going to have to put a heat shield on the bottom of it uh, to, keep, to keep the uh, uh, exhaust from causing trouble. But as, as far as, as your comment, I think the reason they want to chase down the off-throttle blowing is, number one, it's, um, it's not economical in terms of it uses extra fuel. And number two, and this is what the FIA often does, is they identify an avenue and they feel like the teams will spend lots of money chasing those gains. So they will want to shut it down as quickly as possible.
1: Well, really, well, we'd hate to have teams spending a long time, say, chasing down aerodynamics all season long and spending millions and millions of millions of pounds on that. That doesn't seem like joined up thinking. On the one hand, yes, we want to shut down when a team gets a head start, but we will, we are happy to have an inherent cost base where we have people running wind tunnels, bringing updates mid-session, uh, doing 3D prints at track side, that just seems like a false economy, doesn't it? Maybe if they let a lot of these innovations come through, it would take the pressure off this huge aero industry that's built up.
2: Yeah, it, it might, but the, the teams here's the thing, the teams will always find a, a way to um the teams will always find a way to spend the money. So if they're not chasing exhaust blown uh rear wings, they're gonna be chasing um uh, the other interesting technical thing, of course, would be uh, Ferrari's uh, placement of the breather pipe. Uh, so so there will always be uh, a thing for them to chase with money. Someone will have done a thing. Everyone will chase it. They'll go, why did they do that? Uh, we saw a bunch of brand-new Ferrari-looking side pods at the beginning of the season, didn't we? How much do you suppose the team spent chasing that as part of their development cycle? Yeah, it, it's ineb- it's an inevitable game that gets played i would guess um you know if you want a proper response to that it would be simply for reasons of the environment and efficiency because you're going to be using more fuel to keep the uh engine running higher off uh off throttle but the reality is they've determined that they don't want the teams doing it so they're going to shut it down but that does bring us to the other interesting technical controversy and that's your uh your favorite shot of the smoking ferrari and and, and emerging in clouds of burning oil. Now, we know that the the, uh, regulations were changed so that you could no longer vent oil vapors back into the crankcase for reasons of they put a bunch of additives in it to make the engines run better, more powerful, use less fuel. Uh, So now they have to vent these vapors. And most of the teams have chosen to do this by the exhaust Ferrari, however, have run a breather pipe all the way down to the end of the rain light. And there's now a great deal of speculation as to why exactly they've done it, what possible advantage it must be. And of course, the best question, which is why on earth does a Ferrari produce polluting clouds of noxious vapor when it starts? And none of the other teams do. And this, this all started with Scarbs, who, 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 who drew a quick picture to show, um, how it worked last year, where most of the teams were, and what Ferrari were up to this year. Um, My initial speculation would have been that because you have oil coming out near the diffuser, that they were either going to use it to try and add some downforce onto the monkey seat, or they were going to try and use it to aid the efficiency of the diffuser. But uh, Summers has pointed out that what they might actually be doing is using the diffuser itself as a kind of vacuum to help get oil vapors out of the engine uh, without using um without using any additional uh, power or devices, and that unlike many of the other teams, they might not be using a catchment for the oil that they might simply be burning it and blowing it straight out the back. And as to their final gains, that might help with a little bit with engine efficiency and a little bit with cooling but might also help convince the uh, FIA to change their minds about being forced to vent the oil vapors altogether because it is more efficient to capture them and reuse them.
3: Um, Rob Graham reckons the reason they're doing it is so that they can give Hammy an oil slick during the race. Well, they've got, to get, off. They've got to get in front first. Um, Peter, Peter new, I hope I got that right, says there ought to be a new rule for 2018, and that's a championship for the team that uses the least... Oil during the year. And um, Steve Blackout says Ferrari are sponsored by Philip Morris, but can't put a name on the car. So huge clouds of smoke are the answer. Very, very subtle, I thought. Uh, very <laughs> sneaky. <laughs>
1: very sneaky ferrari but well we've got steve amy our video guy uh, let's find out a little bit about him steve what's it like teaching us three idiot producers uh, to put together a weekly video show and then dealing with the aftermath
3: of it in the edit um it's a slow process and it'll take a little time but it's getting there and it's pretty good the aftermath of uh, you know what's going on during the live stream is sometimes hard to cover up but we manage it one way or another i mean what i've got to get you guys to do is to begin to think in pictures you you think as you know in audio and that's all fine but yep. now there's another element to the whole thing and that's just experience but it's fun I mean, I laugh myself gutless while I'm editing. I'm not complaining. So with the audio, if I say something terrible
1: or litigious even, I can just quickly whip it out of the audio. But now with the video, I have to message you as well. Steve, Steve, please keep me out of jail with an edit at 40 minutes and 10 seconds.
3: <laughs> don't worry. I make certain I keep copious notes just in case you don't remember to uh, message me. Now, Steve, we're actually very happy to have you because you are
1: in fact a, a professional uh, video producer.
3: Um, Yeah, that's what I do during the day. I have a small video production company and we make television commercials and corporate videos and training videos and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, what a find for Miss Apex. Steve, it's good to have you finally here in voice and not being as aggressive as you normally are post-show when (laughs) you're telling me what an idiot I am, but that's that's nice because it's a family show. So none of that would make the cut. Uh, And thank you very much for minding our chat room. Now, Chris... Stroll has been making noises, as is his want, and he feels like Williams have sorted out their downforce issues. Obviously, Paddy Lowe's then come and put a bit of cold water on that and said, well, you know, we've got we've got we've got sort of up to where we should have been last year. Uh, Is that a case of Lance Stroll being very optimistic? Because we've seen this a few times where he says something super positive and then Williams come out with something to kind of dampen it.
4: I think it just highlights his inexperience, really, compared to um, the rest of the field and certainly compared to a lot of people at the at the team. I mean, the idea that they've sorted out their downforce issue is not borne out in the evidence on track. Uh, and the evidence on track is that it's a very difficult car to drive that's quite skittish and aggressive uh, and, and not as, you know, sort of flowing and, and nice to drive as uh, the cars, especially at the front of the field.
2: Yeah, and, and that's really what uh, I think Lowe highlighted in, in terms of, uh, particularly he said, entry in the corners, they're okay, but the entry into the corners seems to be giving them real problem, and they haven't figured out what the issue is yet. On the good side, if you are a Williams fan, and I assume that everybody in the UK is a Williams fan just by... You that's, know, not, default, that's not far wrong, yeah. um, Is that that he seemed well pleased with the correlation. He didn't seem to think there were any big issues with the correlation. So unless there's something inherently wrong with the design, uh, they will at least have a chance of, of getting on top of it, particularly with Kubica um, running the simulator for him.
4: And that's a really important thing, isn't it? You know, making sure that the correlation is okay. Cause so many times, I mean, it happened to Red Bull at the start of last year, you know, that. You design a what supposedly is a fantastic car, put it on track, and it's not actually doing anything you expected it to. Um, and that is one of the, probably one of the most difficult things and one of the most important things to, to get right in the initial stages of designing a Formula One car. So yeah, from from that perspective it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a step forward. you know I think what Lance's comment really goes back to is you know, it feels better than last year's car. That doesn't mean it's brilliant. <laughs> because it's not exactly a huge milestone
1: and and again what seems to come out of Williams is this kind of understatement and being more impressed with little things than we would want them to be Matt you know we want them to be talking about when they're going to come up again into the podiums because it wasn't actually that long ago that this was the second best team on the grid so to hear them kind of talking about well you know it's kind of getting easier to get into the corners than it was last year, and our two rockies aren't going to be slipping and sliding as as much as as we were with no downforce. Um, yeah, it's not really what us UK Williams fans want to hear.
2: No, and uh, I think it was Mark Hughes wrote an article about Williams, although I could be wrong about that. And in, in which, um, and and Chris looks like he already wants to interrupt me. So if it wasn't Mark Hughes, you're you're welcome to tell me that it wasn't Mark Hughes. But the the, nut of the article was basically that Williams is still set up with the corporate structure, basically, of a manufacturer of a McLaren or a Ferrari or a Mercedes. They have their own gearbox designers, they have their own this. But the reality is, in this day and age, they don't have the income to be that team. They need to be more of a force India, spending that money incredibly efficiently. In order to really be competing with those teams so they're just inefficient in their spending and their structure it's almost like a legacy structure but they've not got to terms with uh modernizing yet and this is why they seem to both uh, uh, at the one hand they seem to have so much promise but they uh, uh, ultimately fail to deliver on it because they can't spend the resources where they really need to be spent
4: and that comes across on track and in the results because i mean you mentioned uh that time span is when they had the the second best car in 2014 really was what that was was taking advantage of the fact that so many other teams had got that first year of the new regulations so badly wrong uh, and you know they've been slipping back drastically ever since i mean i think they were very lucky uh, to finish where they did in in 2015 you know given that all the, the the issues that other teams were having
1: i will move on now but first I'd like to make an appeal on behalf of Smile with City. We all have busy lives, and we often worry about the most trivial of things. I know I do. Sometimes it's whether the house is clean or whether we'll be able to get the kids to school on time. These concerns all fade into insignificance when we realise how often we take for granted the most important things of all, our children's health. Sadly, some parents aren't so lucky – on the 28th of January 2013, a boy called Sydney, Sidney to his parents, sadly lost his fight to an aggressive form of childhood cancer called neuroblastoma. Now, what I understand is that this is a form of cancer where the symptoms come up before the child is able to express them. Therefore, by the time you get a diagnosis, the cancer has already spread. Crippled with grief, his parents bravely set up the charity Smile with Sidney to help spread awareness of neuroblastoma and fund its research. On Sunday, the 13th of May, 12 exam ninjas, the folks bringing you this podcast at the top of the show, will be running the Bristol 10K to raise funds for Smile with City. All that they're asking for is a small donation to help Smile with City fund their valuable work. If you would like to help and make a donation or find out more, go to examninja.co.uk forward slash smile. That's examninja.co.uk forward slash smile. Smile. Uh, I cannot imagine what it's like to deal with that. I kiss the ground every day that my kids have made it as far as they have, so strong. Uh, And I know that not every parent is as lucky. Now then, Matt, I'm going to talk enthusiastically about tyres. And I'm going to once again try and shake off this myth. That somehow I'm not into them or I don't find them exciting. Now, I don't find their chemical makeup exciting. I don't find the politics of it that exciting, but I do like the strategy element that it brings. And I think bringing three tyres into it made a real difference. I think if we lost this element of different tyres and we just went into an out and out tyre war, I think we'd be missing something from modern Formula One. So let's, let's, let's stop telling me that I get bored when we talk about tyres. I get bored when you talk about tires.
2: Good, then I shall talk about tires.
1: Um, Yeah, go on.
2: Yeah, well, I was going to say, because we have, of course, the uh, selections uh, for the teams for Australia. And not surprisingly, it's the ultra soft party. For those of you who are playing along at home, these would be the purple tires. Uh, The Mercedes has taken nine. Ferrari has taken seven. And Red Bull has taken eight. And and that's pretty much all the teams have gone there. Entertainingly, uh, Hamilton has opted for only one set of the yellow soft tires, which is the hardest tire on offer, and three of the supers. And uh, Botas, for those of you playing at home, have a drink, uh, has opted for two of the soft and uh, two of the super soft. And uh, in fact, Lewis has been very aggressive. The only other person taking a single set of softs Uh, would be sorotkin and grosjean everybody else has at least two softs, so he won't be able to use them basically he's either going to use them uh in practice and not at all during the race or he will save them for the race in case he needs them seems a bit of a gamble if you ask me but uh well there you go it could make a very interesting australia
1: well, that's because, you know, Sharotkin's got them because in Mother Russia, the tyres wear out to you. Uh, but Hamilton is probably uh, quite happy, I think, on that Mercedes that the softs and mediums could probably run a race distance from what we've seen in testing over the last four years. So expect him to strap on an Ultrasoft for qualifying, go six laps, and then the rest of the race, Chris. I mean, I saw some comments
4: after that tyre that selection was uh, revealed, um, sort of suggesting that, ah, uh, the Ultrasoft is uh still too hard then um but i don't think that's really quite the case because you've got to remember they, they'll use probably four five six of those sets just in qualifying and i probably want to reserve one for the for the race as well so i i, I wouldn't uh just jump in too soon and a uh, bit you know before we we, we said that they're too hard because you know frankly they you know they're a step softer than what they were a year ago
1: uh steve Microphones are fantastic devices. You do, however, have to unmute them to enable the link from Sorry your mouth that. to the listener.
3: <laughs> Sorry about that. My stuff up. No, you're a rookie. you're a rookie. Now, you're a rookie in the uh, end zone, Steve. It's our yeah. own fault. Okay. Now, Rob Graham reckons that we should fix this whole tyre debate and make it exciting and have a si- system where every team has to use retreads during the race at least once. <laughs> See, people do want the tyres to fail. Yeah, of course they do. I mean, it used to be fairly boring back in the days when you could do a whole race on one set of tyres. I mean, in those days, it was Ferrari, they'd get in the front and no one had a chance to catch them ever. So I like the way the tyres are built to degrade. Unless you're a Ferrari fan, both of
1: you. So, in the UK, anyway. now, Matt, we do remember the olden days that Steve is talking about. Obviously, Steve can remember more olden days than we can, uh, but it has become an integral part of the strategy. And actually, I'm not hearing people whinge about chocolate tires like, at all. I'm just not hearing it, even though the overall wear rates are, you know, yes, it's not four pit stops a race, but it is has become part of the fabric of what we're doing.
2: Yeah, and I think that's because the uh, the degradation has become a little bit more predictable for the teams, which is part of the problem. And then the, the other part of the problem was because the teams really didn't know what they were going to do. There was very little, um, the teams weren't pushing, the drivers weren't pushing as hard because they were constantly trying to save the tires. And I think the difference is now they have a better idea of where that edge is. And so they're willing to go a bit harder in those five or 10 laps that are really critical to, to winning the race.
1: But Chris we've we've lost the absolute cliff edge where the cars were stopping on track and then limping back to the the pit stop because their their tires just wouldn't grip anymore. If we've got a more a linear progression of lap times, it becomes much more tactical. Actually, it becomes something we can follow.
4: Actually, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that sort of cliff faces is- has gone. It it just takes a, a lot longer to get there, and uh, you know the 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 fact that the drivers can still push on the start that was the real issue. You know, over the last couple of years, was that you nobody wanted to get near another car because of it. So Pirelli have yeah. you know sort of solved
1: that issue. But Chris is isn't isn't a cliff that it that gradually gets to the bottom. Isn't isn't that a hill rather than a cliff?
4: No, no, I'm not saying it gradually gets there. I'm saying it just takes longer. The walk to the cliff face is just a little bit longer. It's a nice, it's a nice one-hour stroll rather than a five-minute, you know, jog.
2: Right. So the the practical implication of this, and if we think about what happened at Mercedes last year, if we look at the number of uh, softs that Hamilton brought, oh, the
1: cops are coming for you, Matt.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just some bad timing there. Sorry about that.
1: All right, Chris, you hide the stash. Matt, you burn the map, and we'll meet back at Vinny's place in 20
2: minutes. Done. It must have been a very bad thing. Uh, I I get a lot of that when I'm not talking. But thankfully, the noise gate keeps it from making it onto the show. I would say, looking at Mercedes' choice, probably they're betting on a two-stopper at this point. Because it's the first race of the year. Because nobody really quite knows what's going to happen, and if you look at the tire allocations, that doesn't look like we're gonna run we're gonna run twenty laps on the ultras and then switch to the sauce for the other for the other thirty eight laps that that looks like they're planning to run uh ultra super super or ultra ultra soft or something like that
1: so then Chris, why no hypersoft
4: uh, I guess because they don't want to to take this brand new tire somewhere where it might only last five laps um you know that was kind of the situation we were seeing in sort of 2013 uh sort of era and i i don't think that, i think that's that's uh, that's an extreme of what we're going for and not something we want to sort of go back to and you know it being a new tire i think introducing it at, at russia um
1: makes a lot of sense where you basically get no tire wear speaking of making sense what's the
3: chat room saying there steve they're not making any sense whatsoever They're all Um, drunk, that's why. (laughs) Is that what it is? Rob Graham said, Pirelli brings rainbows to F1, and then our very own Trumpets has sort of jumped into the chat room and said, now they just need sparkles as well. (laughs) So we need a set of sparkles tyres. And Rick Buxton, who's just jumped in, says, a five-minute jog to tyre mediocrity. That's what it is.
1: All right then, Matt. I think you've had enough fun with tyres. I'm going to take tyres away from you, uh, except to say, actually, we are making the assumption that it's going to be drier tyres. Have you heard anything about the weather for the weekend, seeing as this is probably as close as we're going to get to an official Australia preview for Miss Apex?
2: Oh, I thought you were asking Steve because he's in Australia. Um,
1: the, yeah, the early- I, that would make a lot more sense, actually. should we Should we just do that? Steve, how's the weather?
3: Uh, from what I hear, the weather is going to be fine on Friday. Chance of rain on Saturday and a chance of rain on Sunday too. So that could actually put a you know a, a Spaniard or a Spanner's in the works. Um, you know, for all of the tire planning they've done, it could be out the window. In which case, um, so is Merck's advantage. I think. I love it when a good plan is completely wasted.
1: Tell me about teams finding the funny side of that horrible abomination on the F1 card. How dare you have a sense of humor about the Halo? The worst thing ever. 50% of Twitter is never watching Formula One again because of this Halo, Matt. And McLaren have the audacity to make a feature of it.
2: Yeah, they went out and shockingly found a sponsor for the Halo, <laughs> at least. And, 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 and the, 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 the sponsor was a corporation called Gandhi's, which makes, naturally enough, flip-flops. And I just gotta ask at this point. Um, much like everything else I use in my life, do they call them something uh, completely different in the UK, like shovel shoes? Yes, yeah, no, no. <laughs> we call ridiculous. them
1: flummercum sandwiches, of course. Um, but it, I'm surprised it's taken this long for somebody to adopt the flip flop tag uh, and run with it. But you know, they seem to have a, a lot of fun with it. And Alonso's definitely sort of seen the funny side of himself. He knows how memeable
2: he is. Uh, and and I, there's nothing to the rumor that Red Bull might be getting Victoria's Secret to be their Halo sponsor. Get out! No, of course not. But I mean, you got to admit oh. that. <laughs> Do you know there what? We if you'd I've have said bulb, the little fluorescent zzzz zzzz above your head go off there. If you'd have said Mercedes,
1: <laughs> I'd have gone, oh no, don't be stupid. But you go Red Bull, you go oh, maybe.
2: <laughs> That's maybe, maria, maybe, maybe,
1: maybe. <laughs> uh, Chris, a genius marketing move, a bit cringy because I know you're a bit of a cool kid. So, like for example, when Lucas Degrassi did his pre-race dab the formula e you wouldn't have approved of that at all uh where'd you land on this
4: um i'm a bit
1: indifferent about it uh i mean uh,
4: to me honestly the first thing that came into my mind was wow mclaren have managed to get a sponsor that's that's brilliant (laughs) you know didn't even didn't even occur to me the flip-flop and the thing. it just it sounds like a really good april fools joke though doesn't it
1: Uh, But, Matt, this has exposed what we were talking about last week, I think, which is that the Halo is a really great place to have a sponsor, not only on the outside, but if we're going to have visor cams, I mean, what would you pay to have Missed Apex podcast on the inside of someone's Halo?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of good new um, revenue space for the teams to sell. And uh, following McLaren's lead, I would guess that you're going to see people starting to um, try and take advantage of that with specialty sponsors.
3: The, the chat room have got some uh, opinions about all this. Those Sam Wadley says bad. that uh, <laughs> the United have, have flip-flopped for years and eventually they had to make it on to, onto the car, which Not is quite wild. true. And MS Sports Engineering says Alonso now has shoes for when he's in his Renault you know, beach chair, when it's, he's parked at the side of the road, which is...
2: Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: Going to happen, I'll, I'll, I'll be surprised if any of the Maccas make it to the finish line in Melbourne. I'll be greatly surprised. And Fousey, Hilmi Fousey, Fawzi, Fawzi says he likes what McLaren did on the, with the flip-flop. And Artemy there is also pointing out that Eddie Jordan
1: would definitely have done the Victoria <laughs> Secret. Um, yeah, well... Ah, you've made me blush there, Matt, because I I think I fell for that. I think I think you can count that as a as a gotcha. Uh so let's move on then, because speaking of sponsors, Matt, the Russians are coming.
2: Yeah, indeed they are, and this actually is not a new problem for Russians and Russian sponsorship. However, given the Russian government allegedly behaving rather badly in your country, um the allegedly. issue of uh, the issue of sanctions is once again being brought up. And specifically, the problem is s p Racing. Now, back in 2014, we had the U.S. sanctioning the Russians and the EU going along with it. And there are two brothers behind SP Bank. And the reason I'm talking about S&P Bank is because they are sponsors not only of a WEC team and a whole stable of drivers, but most specifically, they are longtime sponsors of Sergei Saratkin. Who is currently in his race seat, thanks to the um, thanks to the uh, generous benefits of being associated with them? And back in 2014, younger brother, um, uh, where did I lose? I lost the name uh, Rottenberg. Arkady Rottenberg was indeed blacklisted, and that caused him some trouble. But his older brother was not blacklisted and currently lives on the French Riviera in the kind of style that you'd think someone with that sort of money would tend to live. However, his name was on the original list that was vetted. And supposedly, the EU will be again looking at possible sanctions. And if these sanctions are imposed, Sorotkin is suddenly not going to have the money for his drive. And if he doesn't have the money for his drive, well, I don't know who could possibly be stepping in.
1: <laughs> I, I still can't get over the comment you made, Matt, when people were responding to Paddy Lowe talking about, well, no, the engineers, they did it blind. They had the, the lap times there. They had the all the telemetry and they made the decision, you know, completely blind between the drivers. And you went, yeah, but. Strolls figures weren't included in that and it would be funny not funny but it would be interesting to see if indeed Kubica Kubica was very quickly shuffled into that seat if the money went away because wouldn't that completely just destroy everything we've heard coming out of Williams if we hear news about the sponsors you're talking about and then suddenly the young Russian is out of there and Robert's in.
2: Yeah, and, and this is not to take anything away from Sorotkin or his ability or whether or not all other things being equal, he deserved the seat. But this is I mean, this is an issue that was written about in 2014 and, and, and it's and it's coming back because of the the politics of the of the whole thing. And yeah, it would very much um, you know, it would be a difficult PR position for Williams to be in to insist that money had nothing to do with Sorotkin's choice. And then when he lacked the money to, to give the seat to to Kubica, not that that's happened or it's going to happen. But yeah, hypothetically speaking, if, if we reach that particular bridge, they are going to be burning it down.
1: I interrupt this program from post-production, even though I'm feeling very unwell and sorry for myself, I'm being very brave and making sure that I get into the show, that the competition we had for Mark Gallagher's book, The Business of Winning, has now ended. Signed copies of the book are on their way to Chris Harris, Russell Coburn and Joel Atkin. Congratulations to those three for everyone else, including us. Go to the pinned tweet now at Missed Apex F1 and click on the link and you'll get taken to the publisher's website where you can buy the book or you can just go to Amazon and search for The Business of Winning. I am going to be picking up my copy right now. Okay, sorry. Back to the show. We're getting towards Australia. Let's hear the podium music nice and early so we can talk about a preview of the Australian Grand Prix and who we think is going to make that podium. Now, who better to talk about the venue and the track in Australia land than the upside down master of missed Apex video, Steve Amy. Have you been to this racetrack, Steve?
3: Uh, Many, many times. Up until a couple of years ago, I lived about uh, half a mile from it. And I've been used to drive through it every day virtually, um, you know, when it's not being used for Formula One. Um, And I've been to the race there many, many times and uh, enjoyed them all. It's not a bad track, a bit bumpy. And uh, some of the surface a little bit questionable, but it makes for an exciting race. And it was always fun to have the first one, uh, you know, uh, as my home Grand Prix. Now, my ambition for this season is to get to
1: two Grand Prix. I think I'm definitely going to go to the British Grand Prix, not for race day, but for the practice sessions, take the lad there and have a look around. Unfortunately, Australia isn't going to make the list because it's too soon and it's far too far away. I think it's 17 planes before we get to Australia. But do you really kind of sense that F1 starting, carnival kind of atmosphere um, on day one of the F1
3: season? Oh, you feel it even before day one. Um, the the town begins to kind of get quite, you know, buzzy about it all, at least a week before. I mean, they're installing track for, you know, like six or eight weeks before the actual race. So, you know, you can see all this activity going on and people in town are all getting, you know, uh, excited about it and there's bunting up in town and and they put some uh, stalls up in the middle of the railway stations in town and sell F1 merchandise prior to the race, so... Yeah, there's there's a really great feel about it. I think Melbourne does it really
1: well, turns it into a carnival. We'll have to get you down there with some missed Apex merchandise. But Chris, what about the track itself? What on earth is it? I don't really understand what it is trying to be. Uh, People love it. People don't want to see it gone. But is it a street circuit? It is kind of reminiscent of Valencia, if you want to look at it like that. It definitely has things in common with Barcelona. When you look at Turn 1, you go through that first section and you, you think you're on a grand prix circuit and then suddenly you feel like you're in the middle of a street circuit uh tell us about the track itself
4: well um as steve mentioned it's quite bumpy uh, and that immediately is going to highlight a few issues with some of the cars as it so often uh does Uh, uh but it's it's mainly it's mainly about uh traction you know there's a lot of stress on the rear tires there's a lot of um traction zones where you're having to uh, steer the car at the same time, uh, and sort of depending on how, how, you know, good your rear end is, uh, then that's going to really hurt your tires in the race as well. So it is all about, um, the, the rear, it has got quite a, you know, a street circuit, uh, feel to it.
1: So if you've got a good rear end, you're good for longer, which just shows why I'm so good looking as I approach my 40s. But Matt, you've been looking at a few things that we're going to expect from Australia, or did you want to comment on the track further?
2: Uh, 58 laps, slightly over 300 kilometers, uh, 16 turns. The biggest braking events are into turn 15, where you go from 220 to 90 kilometers, and The one that always catches everybody out, turn three, where you're going from 315 to 110 kilometers. I believe Lewis Hamilton had the fast time in qualifying, a 122.188. And in the race, it was Vettel, Hamilton, Bottas, the top three, followed by Raikkonen, Verstappen, and your favorite driver, Massa.
1: So actually, while you're talking about that, this track does have a few corners that catch people out. So before the final right-hander, there's that very tight left-hander. Is that what you were talking about with the hardest braking zone?
2: No, actually, turn three is the hardest braking zone because Ah, you're going from 315 kilometers down to 110, Mm -hmm. a difference of over 200 kilometers. The next close is, you were correct, that's uh, turn 15 where you go from 220 to 90. And that's a slightly more than 90 degree that sets you up. The little chicane to come back, uh, for the little turn to come back onto the straight. The straight is a DRS zone, and between turn two and three is the DRS zone, with the uh, DRS detection being directly before yeah. turn four. But I
1: know we've got a lot of sim racers who listen to this and a lot of gamers, and that one always catches me out because you've got the double right hander before that penultimate turn, and you're still turning and still desperately trying to get back on the racing line before braking, and, well, that catches me out anyway. And, and in fact, we do see a lot of F1 drivers as well going off that penultimate turn as well. So it's a very challenging track, and it's a a good one to start the season off with, except that... Except that. Well, okay, I'll finish my own point then. Except that one of the things that I listed in the notes as expecting to see on Australia is unrepresentative results. Australia always seems to throw up things that we kind of go, Ooh, but then it doesn't continue. McLaren on podiums, for example.
2: Yeah. Or Mercedes eating its tires, which is how we came to have Vettel winning the race last year. And that was what I was going to bring up anyway. So very nicely, very nice anticipation. We're like one. It's like we're on this like I, yeah, twins, like, podcast like, yeah, twins. Yeah, yeah.
4: You bring up a, a good point. Um I, I wouldn't necessarily call it strictly unrepresentative. Certainly, you know, less representative than you'll get at a track like you know, Barcelona, uh, for example. Um, but certainly, you know, if you're quick in Australia and then you're quick at the following round in China, then that's a very, very good sign for the season.
1: Isn't it Bahrain second? It might, uh, no, no, Bahrain is third, I believe. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, no, you make a good point. Yes, if you're good over the first three races. Well, that's, well yeah, it's yeah.
4: another diff, mm. very different kind of circuit from the two before it. So you sort of have these blocks of very different tracks. And if you're you know, consistently good in all of them,
1: then you've got a very versatile car. Tell you what, Trumpets, what else are you expecting to see in Australia?
2: Yes, well, uh, you had mentioned the movie Ten Things I Hate About You, or somebody had. And so I had this idea of ten things we will hate in Australia, or we will see in Australia. Someone, someone
1: accused of- me of being unromantic. That's why I brought that up. I was like, I have seen ten things I hate about you. Several times.
2: Oh, see there you go, and it it is an excellent movie. Heath Ledger all the way, hoorah! Okay, um, but top of my list, we will not see Mercedes win in Australia.
1: Ooh, do you agree with that, Sparkles? I think it's plausible
4: because Renault's engine deficit is not going to be as prominent uh, on a circuit like this. Uh, so there's uh, there's that to contend with. And, but, but where Ferrari fits into the equation, that's going to be really interesting to see as well.
3: Steve Blackout points out that uh, Australia is proof that F1 cars can drive upside down, and I can tell him that that's exactly right. And he's not sure why this question keeps being asked all the time. <laughs> uh, that's a reference to the F1 car
1: in a tunnel scenario, driving yes. upside down in a tunnel.
4: Even, even some of the formula cars in the 750 Motor Club people claim that can be driven on a ceiling
3: is there any way we could actually test this out
1: i will talk to some of the drivers and get this locked down hang on a minute with the people we've had on the show i'm sure joe saywood has been given an f1 car as memorabilia at some point <laughs> and matthew carter has got to have kimmy reikinen's lotus kicking about in his shed there uh, now then, matt you were talking about uh, not having a mercedes win okay these things do happen. I mean, 2014, Lewis Hamilton had a fuel pump go or was it a spark plug or something and he couldn't get very far off the grid. So, so on reliability, these things might happen if that's what you're alluding to. But on pure pace trumpets, I can't see anything other than Mercedes turning up, ruining Martin Brundle's afternoon in Q3. And I will say, to counter your point, that Lewis Hamilton will be half a second clear in Q3, of the next non-Mercedes car.
2: And that has nothing really at all to do with winning the race because he was about that in qualifying <laughs> last year and managed to not win because they had the extra stop because he thought his tires were going off. Yes. And to me, this is where we, we had, I know I know. Chris had said that it was just Botas doing burnouts Botas. to make Pirelli yeah. tires. Yes, you did. I did not say that and brain is also the second race but whatever I, i'm not going to get into this argument right now yes uh they what I, every year they swap it every year yeah anybody could make that mistake anybody could make that mistake it's okay these things happen but mercedes seem to be if they have an issue it's tires and if they have a tire issue and australia it always seems to be worse for them And it's because partly, I think, due to the nature of the surface, partly due to the temperature, but mostly due to just it's a brand new tire on an unrepresentative circuit. So they're forced out of their comfort zone when it comes to decision making. And they tend to be a bit conservative. And that opens the doors for other teams.
1: Ah, I think you might have nailed it there, Matt. It's not that they are tactically bad in any way, but yes, perhaps they are conservative. And I think we did see that particularly in 2016. Obviously, no one was really threatening them then. Uh, And at the beginning of 2017, but I think they woke up to that because in the second half of the season, they seemed to get that drumbeat of strategy calls correct. So I'm not as pessimistic as you. Perhaps they might have shaken that off. And perhaps 2017, the early season, remember they hadn't been challenged for three years.
2: Yeah. And in and 2017 was the start of basically a brand new chassis regulations. So they would have been much more out to see last year than they would be this year. Still, I feel like it's important to at least give the viewing public some hope that it won't just be, <laughs> you know, 19 Mercedes victories and then maybe a crash or something.
1: Well, I mean, if you're assuming that people aren't Mercedes fans and they don't want Lewis Hamilton to win, obviously we do want good racing. But I tell you what I got upset about. people who think that if there's no race at the front, there's no race whatsoever. I mean, I still think about 2013 and as somebody who was following Lewis Hamilton very closely, 2013 was not really a season that he was in after Silverstone. But if you look at the races in, I'm going to go on a limb, I think um, North Korea, not North Korea, Korea, where he was dicing with Hulkenberg. In fact, he had quite a few good top midfield dices with Nico Hulkenberg. There's a lot going on down in the midfield. But it takes kind of Lewis Hamilton being there for the cameras to get on uh, and do it. So maybe when Lewis Hamilton is out there dominating, you know, there's less focus um on the teams at the back. Steve, are you trying to get my attention, boss? <clears throat>
3: yeah, I've got a few comments here. Go for it. Um <laughs> uh, Army X says that Hamilton's gonna win. The rest of the podium has four solid contenders for two remaining places, and he says it's hard to choose. Um dash N says that that um Merck will be first, Ferrari second, Red Bull, and then Renault, Hassan, McLaren will be sort of down the back, which I agree. It's totally
1: entirely wrong, but we'll go and, through that when
3: you're finished. <laughs> <laughs> and Lancia Delta Racing says that pursuing a conservative approach is technically very bad. So everyone should just go flat out from the start. Wow.
1: I mean, you can criticise Mercedes all you want. They did win the championship last year and the year before and the year before that. And the year before that. Uh, let's just go through that order that Steve just mentioned there. So Mercedes up at the front. Okay, so let's abandon the championship for a moment. Let's just talk about Australia team-wise, car-wise. Mercedes up at the front. Yeah, sure. I think the smart money's there. Ferrari second. Chris, no way. Not a chance. Red Bull are going to come out there as the main contenders for uh, for Mercedes crown in Australia.
4: I mean, this is certainly the general consensus, and they do have a big update for the first race of the season as well. Uh, so that is, you, you know, they're certainly favourite to be the challengers. We don't really know where Ferrari fits into this equation, and and we'll get the answer for that in in Melbourne. But you know, especially seeing as from 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 what we've seen in testing, that element of having. Uh, a car with a nice wide operating window seems to be a characteristic that they have maintained. But of course, we'll get a better idea of that
1: as the season progresses. And Matt, there is a gap down to fourth. So I think whichever team isn't second will be third out of those two. But it, the the comment is wrong again, isn't he there? Saying, oh, by the way, hello, NN. Welcome to the chat room. I'm not using your comment as just a, a thing to rip apart for the sake of content. Uh, aside, I am doing that. Um, Renault 4th, you know I've got this bet with Anil, where I think that Renault will be beaten by Force India. You know, let's put our cards on the table. Still an unreliable engine compared to the front two. Possibly going to have their toys taken away uh, with their rear diffuser. Perhaps they shouldn't have advertised it with a fireproof rear wing. Renault, I just don't have the confidence in them overall that they are somehow going to be the team that can be the best of a talented field of Formula 1 teams.
2: Yeah. And it's not because, um, from a driver point of view, I, I think they are close to the talent of Force India. Yeah. I, oh yeah. yeah from very a little Stassi argument. Point of view, I believe they're ahead of Force India. However, a- the weakness for Renault is the power unit, and yep. it is, was massively unreliable. They're behind on their ERS development cycle. And the only Renault power unit that has consistently been able to trouble for a podium is the one that's in the back of the Red Bull, which as we know, will be running a different spec fuel and oil this year and is very thoroughly optimized by the extra several hundred million dollars available to Red Bull through the technology center. Now you talk about Mercedes being at the front, like it's a done deal, but I will say Australia is a one-off. It happens to be the home race for Ricciardo. So I will go out on a limb and look for him to take it to Mercedes.
1: Hey, a home if it's victory wide, would be good, wouldn't it?
2: And I'd say if it's wet, I, I, I'd say Verstappen would be even money in that situation. Because the, the aero uh, package that Red Bull had at the end of last season was beyond the pale compared to Ferrari or Mercedes.
1: Okay, so let me caveat a lot of what I'm saying in general and what I've been saying in the pre-season with Australia. Yes, that's one thing. But Bahrain, China, certainly. So when you're saying, yes, we're saying it's a lock-in that Mercedes are going to win. I mean, I really am much more confident about Bahrain, China than I am for Australia. And that applies as well with the Force india Renault battle that I've constructed in my head. Because, I mean, Chris, I mean, we know Toto has said... Now the teams are definitely going to have all the same engine modes because they've always had the same engine modes. So Force India, how can they fail? I mean, the
4: the fact that they're in a spot of bother at the moment financially and uh, the fact that we haven't properly seen their 2018 car on, uh, on, on track yet, I, I think that's probably going to hinder them in the first few races. I mean, both teams have got major setbacks.
1: Uh, so it's All right, basically then. who gets it the least wrong. I'll ask you this then. This is true. Talking about the least wrong then. In the hybrid era, what's the worst a Mercedes-powered team has done?
4: Um, That's, uh, that's a really good question, actually.
1: Yeah. I mean, probably... Do, do, I you, mean, do you remember 2014, I think, basically Williams got yeah. a head start on everybody and they basically yeah. had a car that had no aero and it was just, you know, 14 rocket launches a lap. And, and that did well enough. Now, I, I think people have. F- are starting to underestimate again what a huge advantage the mercedes power unit gives you i mean certainly in
4: 2014 it was yeah they got a massive you know jump start on everyone i think uh, that that's less of the case now uh it, it certainly still is the case a little bit um but uh, i would have said you know the mclaren that was <laughs> the worst one and, but probably williams is that is, takes that role now
2: Right. Um you're still asking about the um power unit, the worst one? Yeah. Yeah, uh, really it was McLaren but more because they just they, they they lacked operational stability.
1: Oh, and we know they were using a different fuel as well yeah. against the that, the that advice too. of Mercedes. As yeah. I said.
2: What? Uh are you ready for a next controversial prediction? I am. Toro Rosso will beat McLaren and neither Oof. McLaren will finish
1: you know that's a that's a big shout, and it's Australia I think the the second thing you said there is more likely, and of course Steve Amy did allude to that as well. Neither McLaren finishing is likely, given the gremlins they've had throughout testing, yes, they did manage to pull together a last nice day, but when you have that many failures throughout the course of testing compared to the other teams who have been relatively stable, so it's not like twenty fourteen You have to think then, a Grand Prix distance, a Grand Prix weekend, it's not inconceivable that both of them could put out. But let's assume, let's give this to Chris, let's assume both McLarens finish the race and nothing just falls off. Do you expect them to beat Toro Rosso? Uh,
4: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, uh, I would say that the Honda uh, power unit, in terms of performance, still is lacking a little bit compared to the others and you certainly would expect mclaren to be able to put a better car together than torosso Toro uh given given the histories um whether that's you know the case this year that's another matter entirely but uh i i would be surprised if if Toro Rosso beat mclaren on pace
1: so matt i'm thinking a lot of your uh, prediction is coming from the fact that Toro Rosso have just gotten out of honda's way and said do you know what you've been frustrated for three years? We're gonna just let you do we're just gonna let you put it where you want. And everyone's happy when that's said.
2: Yeah, I think if there's gonna be a failure with tararaso it's gonna be the fact that they have two brand new, relatively inexperienced drivers. Yeah. Um, if they had Carlos Sainz and Fiat back behind the wheel, I, I would really see Toro as they did when when Sainz was driving for them, challenging quite regularly in the midfield. And I do believe that the reliability of the McLaren is going to be why the Toro will finish ahead of them. They might have ultimate pace over one lap, but I'm really not convinced over the course of the whole race. And and, and let's face it, Chris is arguing right now that what amounts to a factory works team is going to be beaten by a customer team. Interesting. And, And the third customer, the third customer, the lowest down customer, Red Bull Renault, McLaren's the bottom of the heap of Renault Power Unit customers Sparkles,
1: right now. what's of your journalistic integrity C- now? Customers beating
4: other manufacturers is not exactly something new at the moment. I mean, we've literally just spent half the show talking about how Williams had the second best car as a customer.
2: Sorry, I- I'm laughing in the chat room at Lucas's comment, but I'll let Steve introduce that if he's found it.
3: Um, you mean the one where Lucas says um, Will Stoffel and Fernando wear fireproof flip-flops during the race? <laughs> that one. <laughs> I reckon that would be something to see all right. Go on then, As Steve. for my predictions yeah. for uh, for the race. Uh, if it's raining uh, on Sunday, then I think the Red Bulls have a real chance. Uh, personally, because I'm an Australian, I'd like to see Ricardo do well. But I think if it's raining, he's going to have a big fight because Verstappen's very good in the wet, too. Um, and I think in the dry, uh, Red Bull will be second, and I think Ferrari will be third. Now, it's interesting there. You're
1: talking about uh, the order we think people are going to finish in in the wet, in the dry. No one is mentioning Valtteri Bottas. Valtteri Bottas has potentially the best race car in, on the grid with a teammate that goes all out absolutely everything or nothing and none of us have mentioned him at all in any of our predictions now Chris Bottas says he is capable of winning the world championship and he looks to Nico Rosberg as his example somebody who took three seasons sizing up his opportunity uh, and then finally pouncing in 2016 is Bottas massively deluded is he just saying what he's expected to say Uh, to me this is his last season in mercedes whatever happens
4: no, i i think he can he can easily be world champion uh well not easily uh let me let me take that part of the sentence back but yeah he can be world champion he's got uh potentially the quickest car on the grid and uh, we know that on a on a good day he can uh beat lewis hamilton he just needs to be able to find those good days very consistently and of course, you know, with Lewis Hamilton as your teammate, it is a major uphill struggle uh, to compete with him, uh, and that's you know the mountain that that Valtteri has to climb. But I, I say, you know, he of course he's got it in him
1: to 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 try and do that. Trumpets, what what are we listening to here? Bottas is not Nico Rosberg.
2: No, he's not. But think about how long it took Rosberg to figure out, you know. Assuming you, assuming you put him, you know, on equal with Hamilton the year he won, and not,
1: you know, A step I step behind with with the, with old, the Edding dice the falling his way.
2: Uh, but it it took him several seasons to get to terms with Hamilton, and we all know that Bottas joined Mercedes at the very very last minute. So I think this season will be the first proper test of Bottas. He needs to do better than he did last season, and significantly so.
1: So I think, yeah, well, I think it's just down to probabilities. The closer you are to your teammate, the more faces you get on the 20-sided dice of fate. And it rolls and it picks you out, not based on your individual performance on the day, but on how likely you are to win. If you can get your face on five of those sides, then you're more likely. I think Rosberg, on a six-sided dice, he had one Maybe two of those sides. And finally, after four rolls of the dice, he was good enough to take advantage of a bit of luck. He did have a bit of luck. But the point is, he was good enough over four seasons and close enough to eventually win after four seasons. And can't really blame him for recognising that and then bowling out. How many faces, Matt, do you think Bottas has on that 20-sided dice against Lewis Hamilton? I would say one at best.
2: Well, I say one. However, I was going to add that the more of the circuits they resurface, the better his chances will get because the biggest differentiator between him and Hamilton, as far as I can tell, has been Hamilton's management of the tires. This is where Bottas has really struggled. The newer the asphalt, the less grippy it is, the longer the tires last, the closer he has been. And uh, we all recall his... Amazing qualifying lap in the Williams, where he just about stuck it on pole were it not for the very last corner. And 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 on circuits like that, he will be much closer to Lewis. And so the more they resurface, the better his chances get.
4: The thing that you, you mentioned, you know, sort of about you know about the, the, the probability aspect of it. I think it'd be interesting if if we see them in more close, you know, wheel to wheel situations, how Valtteri handles that because we know that uh Lewis in in those sort of situations 9 times out of 10 he'll come out on top you know he knows how to take a situation and turn it into his own so uh, it's how Valtteri then reacts to that and tries to get himself ahead in in that one that's going to be sort of a key play in this championship if he wants to challenge for it
1: okay well we're running out of time but honestly i think you're all being very generous and Bottas seems like a lovely bloke, there's not a cat's chance in hell that he is going to pull a Rosberg on Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton's title contenders this year are the winner of the Red Bull battle. I think it'll be Max Verstappen. I think Red Bull have got previous on picking a favourite, and I think, I feel, that they've picked Max Verstappen or Sebastian Vettel. Bottas has one chance of staying in that Mercedes seat, and that is being a good rear gunner number two. And the Battle of the Finns last year showed that, yes, the number two driver would have been a deciding factor had either of those number two drivers made themselves a nuisance. The fact is Bottas not only didn't challenge for the title, he barely made himself a nuisance to Sebastian Vettel in his challenge of Lewis Hamilton. Bottas is going to be miles off. Don't even think about Valtteri Bottas as a championship contender Matt we've won won quite long it might be because it's a Saturday and we're relaxed and it's not a school night we don't have to get up tomorrow morning however it is time to say goodbye so where can people find you if they want more
2: well they can find me at MattPT55 on the Twitters you can look for uh, once our inestimable video editor gets through hacking together (laughs) my miles of footage a very interesting Trumpets time coming up uh, my visit to the virtual reality racing club that is hub Neo here in new york city and of course you can always go to amazon and buy any of my wife's books at a weaver rights to distract your significant person whilst you watch the race and the qualifying we certainly wouldn't want to argue with that sparkles
1: where can people find you on the internet my man
2: you can get me on
4: Twitter at C stevens underscore journo. You can get my feature in Autosport Magazine uh, this week. So it's, uh, it's come out. And then in the next edition, I'll also be talking about the the cancelled meeting from Donington. So I don't actually know what we're putting in the mag just yet. Uh, we'll work that out tomorrow. Uh, and uh, you can also check me out on e-radio. And we'll be doing our Punta del Este e race review on uh, Tuesday, Matt. Tuesday
2: it is.
1: A lot of people on the internet saying nice things about you at the moment. Chris Stevens, congratulations on your progression. Aww. I'm looking forward to reading your feature as well. Aww. Steve Amy, uh, it's not unfair to say that you're not a young man and you didn't grow up in the internet age. Do you have an internet presence at all?
3: Uh, no. In fact, I had a client who once came to me and I quoted for a job. And when I went back to talk to him, he said, I went to look you up on the internet and I couldn't find a single thing and I said well in that case I've done my job haven't I
1: <laughs> So you only really deal with us online you're in our Patreon Slack group as well you have a bit of fun there uh you're currently editing together the masterclass that me Brad Philpott and Chris Stevens uh, did uh, did we do did we do anything like well enough to put together something entertaining
3: We'll pull out something that will be fairly entertaining. It was a good exercise, and the second one will be much better. Oh wow, it's a good learning experience.
1: Uh, ouch, that's exactly hurts. right. The post production will be good. We'll do a lot of voiceover. If it, if it worked for Blade Runner, it can it can work for us as well. Make sure we'll you, we'll make it work. Make sure you follow the show at Mist Apex F One. Now you can also follow me at Spanners Ready. Join us for the Australian Grand Prix race review. We'll be the first one, apart from checkered flag, and that's cheating because they're sponsored by a big corporation. If Autosport beats us, same thing for that. The first independent podcast review will be us. So until then, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory last forever. This was Missed Apex. F1 starts now! Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, silly spanners. What a wally. He's forgotten. Or have I made it into a feature? Have I finally turned me forgetting comment of the week into a feature, not a bug? No, I haven't. I completely forgot it. But Steve looks ready. So let's go for
4: comment of the week.
1: And yes, Matt, thank you for waving frantically to remind me that I'd forgotten something obvious it's only been how many episodes i think it's like yeah, 200
2: something like that
3: steve have you got any contenders for comment of the week oh there are plenty of contenders today um blackout 19 with his comment that ferrari are sponsored by philip morris but they can't put a name on the car so huge clouds of smoke are the answer i think that's a brilliant piece of advertising because i work worked have worked in advertising i think that's a great piece of thinking steve um Sam Watt has actually two contenders. Um, One is a comment about the FIA have flip-flopped for years. Eventually, it had to make it onto a car. (laughs) And he he also said that now Honda are gone, McClaptrap can probably implicate the Russians in their car failures. It's always the sneaky Russians. But I think the winner probably should be Lucas with... The question is, will Stoffel and Fernando wear fireproof flip-flops during the race? Well, Lucas, you are the winner of...
1: Feel free to add that to your Twitter handle. See you later, guys. Good night.